0: Welcome to the Heart of Leaders podcast, where each week we'll be exploring the frontiers of leadership with those who lead from the heart and put their people first, knowing that ultimately, all team accomplishments are driven by people. They know that when they take care of their people, their people will take care of customers, lower costs, and drive customer loyalty and company profitability. These leaders believe that for most companies, culture trumps strategy. And culture starts with how you treat your people and how they treat each other. I'm your host, Rick Barrera, head of faculty for the Heart of Leaders training program in Denver, Colorado, where we teach extraordinary leaders how to build and lead high-performance teams who can consistently deliver exceptional results. This is Rick Barrera, your host for the Heart of Leaders podcast. Today, I'm here with one of our true American heroes, Navy SEAL Eric Frohart. We're going to get to know Eric in this episode, and then we'll talk about heart-led leadership with Eric in our next episode. One of the things that always amazes me about our faculty is how humble and grateful they are, and Eric is no exception. He's one of the most accomplished people I know, and yet exceptionally humble. Eric, welcome. Thank
1: you, uh, Rick. I appreciate that uh, that introduction. I guess I'll try to live up to it.
0: Uh, You already have. So, Eric, where did you grow up?
1: Well, I grew up in a small town of northwest iowa
0: called uh, Shack City. Shack City? Shack City. S A C. I never knew that. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah.
1: S-A-C-C-I-T-Y. Yep. I think when I left I think when I left town the first time we only had one stop light and then at some point I I went back to back to Sack uh, while I was on leave and noticed we had gained a new stoplight. So it wasn't a big big town but uh it
0: was a great town to grow up in. It's it's doubled in size though. We got two lights now. Well it it well this, the number of lights may have doubled but the number of people have not <laughs> Okay and you you were up on a pig farm, is that right? Yep. Some kind of a farm, yeah.
1: Yep. I grew up on a uh, uh I grew up on a hog farm uh and uh had to in addition to, it wasn't just a hog farm. We also raised uh, corn and soybeans. And uh, in addition to, you know, I had I had to work pretty hard all of my childhood, especially during my, you know, my teenage years. Uh, and in addition to the pigs, we raised corn and soybeans. So there were kind of uh, the kind of regular chores um, that we had to do for the animals, as well as seasonal chores and tasks uh that we had to do for the crops um you know specifically you know year round we had to do the hog chores which you know really means feeding them or kind of moving them around from from one pen to another or you know even selling them to market uh but then they're kind of just going sequentially winter was very cold in northwest iowa you know cold temperatures high high wind chill and then uh we had a lot of hogs outside at the time so we had to make sure they were fed um, ensure they had enough bedding to get through the cold night and then even spend time thawing, you know, thawing hog waters when it's 20 or 30 below.
0: How do you thaw hog water?
1: <laughs> These little handheld, handheld torches. You'd like have a it's kind well, of, you know, you had like a tarp around you and then to block the wind. And then you'd kind of sit there with this torch and kind of melt the water, um, <laughs> sure. it's as fun as it sounds. Uh, especially, you know, when you have thousands of hogs outside, you can imagine how long a day that would make. Um, And then spring was great because it warmed up, uh, but it was, you know, it was busy. Uh, So we still had the regular hog chores, but we had to make sure the equipment was ready to get the crops planted. And there was the, I'd say the added stress uh, of that time of year that my dad felt because he was always, you know, he was always in a race to get the crops planted before the next big rainstorm, you know? So we'd have like a, a forecasted like couple of weeks of dry weather and it was late enough in spring that we could plant. And then it was a race to get all that stuff planted. And then if, you know, if a tractor broke down, it all kind of derailed. So there was doing the regular chores, but the added stress of, you know, of spring planting, um, summer, uh, it was, it was, probably the most fun but it you know in northwest iowa it's really hot you know it's above 100 degrees many times and hotter with the heat index and you know, we had hogs outside and a few hogs inside uh, and it was just hard work you know, doing the chores for them as well as uh, some of the seasonal stuff like we had to pick rock out of the fields and even walk the beans to pull weeds so we'd uh, actually walk the length of the bean field with gloves and machetes pulling and chopping weeds out. Um, and in addition to all that, I was usually, especially as a teenager in the summer, I was getting ready to, to play football. So I would either lift weights before or after farm work. So summers were, like I said, fun, but busy. Uh, and I think fall was fall was probably, was definitely the busiest, i played played football in junior high and in high school. Uh, obviously, I had school football and then chores, and then I had to help with harvest and there were times that i missed I missed school just to help get the crops out i have i I have a lot of very very vivid memories of me working past midnight regularly during the fall as a teenager on school nights and that was that was always challenging either i worked really late and had to go to school early the next morning or sometimes if you know if, if rain was coming or weather was coming i might even skip school to help get the crops out and i think probably even harder than all that was waking up really early on a saturday after playing a tough football game on friday so Needless to say it was all in all like growing up on a on a small hog farm and hog farm in Northwest Iowa was it was hard work and I wouldn't change it for the world.
0: <laughs> it's making the military sound easy. <laughs> so uh, well
1: I mean there, there were actually there were times where I was, I felt like wow it wasn't that hard today I've had harder days on the <laughs> you know on the farm like, I mean there there were plenty of hard days in the military don't get me wrong um, and plenty of days that were colder or, or you know I was colder or wetter or more tired in the military but I had a pretty uh, I don't want to say rough childhood because I had very loving parents and an awesome family but I uh, I learned how to work. So, uh, like I said, I wouldn't change it for the world.
0: Yeah, that's great. So, what what prompted you to join the military? Well, I was in college and I was taking some different classes, and I was never,
1: never really, nothing really was ever like, wow, that's for sure what I want to do, right? So, I was taking classes on some criminal justice classes on, like, maybe being, you know, a cop or an FBI agent. But I was also taking some. Uh, Agra business classes, and you know, I thought I might be a farmer. So I wasn't really sure, and at the same time, I was trying to play football at the college level, and not really succeeding. Um, I was good in high school, and I realized when I went to college that I really wasn't big enough, fast enough, or strong enough to play football, like most people aren't. So, I think one night in the after the football season, I was watching a movie with some friends and. There were some Navy SEALs in some action movie, and it it just kind of reminded me of the you know, how much I just loved as a kid playing GI Joes. And I had never really, I had never really considered the military when I was getting out of high school. Like college was the only option. And then for some reason, whether I was like sick of college or like combination of being sick of college and seeing that movie and just not sure what I was going to do. I just decided then and there to finish one year of college and join the military and try to become a seal. And I stood up and told people in the room, like, I'm done with college. I'm going to join the military and I'm going to be a seal. And uh, (laughs) I, I, I enlisted the next day because someone said you'll never make it. Right. So they said, you'll never make it. And I've always had kind of a chip on my shoulder and I was like, all right, well, I'm enlisting. I enlisted the next day, and I went away and you know later after I'd finished that year of college. So it was always uh, I always wanted to do something, I guess, hard and something special. And like I said before, you know, I, at that age, certainly, like many others, I think I had something to prove. So that was the reason for joining, not the reason for staying in. <laughs>
0: <laughs> cool. So what was the transition like from farm boy to elite soldier?
1: Uh yeah, it was it was interesting. Uh I was one of those I was one of those farm kids who'd never seen the ocean or never been in an airplane. Um we took you know, we took vacations to Omaha. So <laughs> I hadn't seen I hadn't seen much. Uh so it was it it was difficult, but uh, it was a lot of fun and I did it well. Um, we'll talk more about like my transition out of the military. Yeah. Uh, But I think my, my transition from the farm to the seal teams was actually easier than my transition from the seal teams back into, you know, the private sector.
0: Yeah, no, I, I bet.
1: I had a clear sense of purpose that I wanted to become an elite soldier. Right. So the power of having that, like of knowing what you want to do.
0: The clarity of a daring destination. It's one of our core principles.
1: I had that clarity. It was on the horizon. I, I, it was easy to not veer right or left because I could always ask myself, is this going to get me closer to becoming a Navy SEAL? If not, I wouldn't do it. Right. So I was not distracted. And I just felt like as I was going through that process, Uh, I I don't want to say it was easy, but I do want to say I had like, as I was going through the training, I I honestly felt like I had found what God had made me to be. (laughs) I loved, I loved every minute of it, even though it was hard. And there were many times where my farm boy upbringing helped me a lot, specifically, you know, harsh conditions, hard work. Uh, you know, I had a background that, you know, I always worked out, so I was always in shape and there were just, there were times of training in my training, uh, not, you know, it wasn't often, but there were times where I was like, oh, this is actually this is more enjoyable than working on the farm. Um, not, you know, not always. I mean, I had, you know, lots of great memories on the farm, of course, but, uh, I would say you know, to answer your question, it was hard. Um, but it was also a lot of fun.
0: Cool. So uh, you have some pretty uh, solid values and uh, we've talked about them multiple times. So can you talk a little bit about your values and how they guided you both at home and then as you became a SEAL? Yeah, Uh, I think, you know, I have one of those, um, definitely one of those people who
1: didn't quite realize how good my parents were (laughs) when I was a kid. And then now I realize, A, how hard it is. Um, And, you know, especially how hard it is with four kids. You know, my parents raised four kids, and now I'm raising four kids. And it's hard to get it right with one. And, you know, it seems harder to do with four. But my parents, they instilled in me a lot of great values in me and my siblings. And, you know, the first I would say is that sense of responsibility, so as kids, we were responsible for certain things and um, you know, on a regular basis or when we were assigned you know, a certain task and we had to do it and, and we had to do it right. And If we didn't do it right, we had to do it again and it could be just doing dishes and if we didn't do it right one night, we had to do it the next night. And if we didn't do it right, we had to actually take responsibility for not doing it right or for screwing it up. Um, Number two, um, respect. So we had to respect our elders, uh, you know, teachers, parents, coaches, and specifically for me and my brothers, most importantly, we had to respect women. So like one of the biggest, the biggest punishment we would receive from my dad, who at the time was, 64350, three fifty, big guy, um, was if we disrespected mom or other women around him. So, you know, we respected our elders and we especially respected women. Um, we were taught a work ethic and, and, and how to kind of balance that with play. Like I mentioned, we worked really hard on the farm. Uh, but we, we took, we also took time to play and have fun while we were on the farm, you know, whether it was on the four wheeler going fishing or when I was younger making like forts and things like that. my dad was like super playful with me and my brothers. So, uh, that work, you know, that work play balance was important, you know, emphasis on work. Uh, and then last, uh, was this kind of, I would say was our faith, like everything, everything we did was built on a foundation of faith and having a relationship with God, we went to church every Sunday morning, and we went to youth group every Thursday night, even during harvest season, and regardless of regardless of what was happening, um, and I, at the time, as a kid, of course, did not want to go to church on Sunday mornings, and I did not want to go to youth group on Thursday nights, and now... Uh, I'm raising four kids, and I'm making taking them to church on Sunday, and
0: <laughs> making them
1: go to making them go to youth group on, on Well, for us, it's Wednesday nights. So, uh, and I know like that is it's so much easier not to go. And I'm not, you know, I know not every not all your listeners are going to be religious or faithful or whatever. But I have a great respect for you know for the work that my parents did. Should make us do all that stuff because it's actually, it's actually easier not to do that stuff. Um, It's easier just to hang out at home and play on iPads and things like that.
0: Excellent. So you, you were married during the time you were, you were deployed, right?
1: Yeah, I was deployed many times, several times. um, And uh, one, you know, the first deployment, my, my now wife was a girlfriend and, uh, each deployment thereafter, uh, you know, we were married and it was, uh, I think the first deployment after we got married, uh, was like a nine month deployment.
0: <laughs> um, to,
1: and that was, that was like two or three weeks after we got married. So that was our honeymoon. I went away for nine months. So it was hard. And, uh, you know, for, I would say it, it was harder for her. Um, I got, you know, for me, I got to go downrange or I got to go to war and have fun. And, you know, I was younger, I got to chase bad guys. And I didn't worry about, you know, paying bills and taking out trash and all that stuff, you know, domesticated people get to do. Right. So I was really, you know, by design, I had to be like hyper focused on being a warrior and kind of detaching myself from. You know the norms of regular society. In order to be the effective warrior I needed to be, in order to come home alive and do my job, and uh, it was always hard to transition, you know, back and forth from, you know, going to war, being a warrior, and coming home and being a, a husband and a father. And uh, there are, you know, there are some qualities to being a warfighter that do not lend themselves to being, you know, a loving, caring husband and father right. and, uh, and, vi- and vice versa. So we got, you know, Leah and I got really good at that transition and kind of got used to the kind of rhythm and what to expect with it. And, uh, you know, it's never easy, but, uh, the more you do it, uh, the easier it becomes. And, uh, I think for me, most importantly, like everyone wants to thank Soldiers, sailors, airmen, marines, uh, and I think that's great that people want to thank those who serve. Uh, but when people thank me, I, I like to, you know, tell them to thank my wife because uh, she put up with a lot more than me, uh, especially towards the end as we were having, you know, children.
0: I'm surprised you had time to have four children. Well, I had three while I was, yeah, we had three while <laughs> I was in, and then we had our, you know, we had our fourth when we got out. So, Yeah. Very good. So uh, what did it feel like for you to be a member of an elite SEAL team, especially since that's what you set out to do?
1: It really was awesome. Just being, being a, a part of something bigger than myself and being a member of an elite SEAL team was one of the highest honors I've ever had. It was an amazing period of my life during the height of the global war on terror, you know, I got some of the best training, individual training that the taxpayer could buy. I got to train, you know, with my, with my team, you know, doing group training very often and and travel together and just have fun. And then for me, most importantly, you know, I got to deploy, I got to go to war and I got to hunt bad guys uh, for my country and it was awesome to be a part of that and uh I don't know if I have other words to describe it other than it was you know it was it was an honor and uh I you know an honor that I don't take lightly
0: yeah I think you told me at one point that you felt like you were really good at that you've never been as good at anything as you as you were at that
1: yeah and I I was good at like good at what I did and I was in the right place at the right time and, you know, with the right people doing the right thing. So that's, I guess, how I would put it.
0: So why'd you leave the SEAL team?
1: Well, I
0: ended up getting medically
1: retired. So um, I would actually have, uh, I would have been, let's see, this year would have been my 20th year. Um, But before I could do that, uh, the Bureau of Navy Medicine decided I could no longer, uh, I guess, no longer do the job, so kind of uh, got got medically retired back at the end of 09 or the beginning of 2010, and since then I've been trying to transition back into civilian life.
0: And what's that transition been like? <laughs> well, I, I
1: alluded to it earlier, but I, so you know, people laugh at this when I say it, and uh, you know, but I stand by it. It, it is. For me, it's been harder to leave the teams, uh, to leave the military than it has been to join the teams and become a SEAL. Of course, it was uh, you know it was hard to become a SEAL. It was hard to stay a SEAL because they hold you to a high standard. Uh, and you know, for me, many times I felt like it came easy, and I was in the job I was meant to be. I was the person I was meant to be. It was a huge part of my identity. Um, but it was, and it still is uh, much harder for me to not be a seal and to have, you know, get out of the military and be a you know just a regular citizen uh and try to make a living in the private sector
0: and what's been the hardest part <sighs>
1: the i'm not i'm not sure when when i joined i had i think you know there's a couple of things for for starters when I joined, I had nothing to lose and only myself to support, right? I was a teenager joining the Navy and I had kind of a clear focus on, you know, what I was going to be. And I had if I failed, it was only me, right? Um, so that made that pretty easy, right? I, I didn't have anyone else to depend on me. Um, and I had a very clear purpose of what I was going to be and what I was going to do. Uh, when I got out, uh, had a wife and three kids, uh, I now have four, but at the time a wife and three kids, I didn't, you know, for starters, I couldn't like a lot of people when they get out, they got to go, you know, take some, you know, quote unquote, some time for themselves and maybe they go to college or go be a ski bum or something like that. Like I never got that, like, cause I had, (laughs) you know, groceries and mortgage and stuff. So I had, A, I had more, you know, more people to support and B, um, I didn't know what I was going to do. Like I have no, uh, no clear, you know, clear direction, clear purpose, right? Like when I was joining the military, I had that clear purpose, right? I'm going to go become, I'm going to go become a seal. Like that was like, that might be hard, but it made it easy because I had, you know, I had a direction. Right. And when I got out, got out, I didn't, you know, I didn't know, you know, I didn't know how I was going to you know, support my wife and my kids. And it was, you know, without that, it's really hard. And I think, you know, for a lot of guy, a lot of people getting out of the military, of course, it is, of course, hard uh, to leave the SEAL teams, to leave an elite team and to not be around your teammates. Um, it's it's even harder if that is the I guess for some people it's the biggest part of their identity. So if your if your identity is one hundred percent I'm a SEAL or I'm a you know, this kind of spec ops soldier, you know, I mean you could probably apply it to professional sports, right? I am this, I am that, and that's a big part of me and all of a sudden you don't have that. Like I yeah. think that is obviously I mean that's one of the things that makes it hard but for me I think you know I could get over that um it wasn't easy but I could get over not being part of that team anymore um but the thing that was hard to get over and really hard to manage was just not knowing you know how I was going to um pay a mortgage and you know buy groceries right <laughs> so, Uh, That was that was the hardest part, I guess.
0: Yeah, that's very understandable. Well, you know, so you are doing some professional speaking as well, right? So I guess that's another avenue for you for revenue. Yeah, that's good for you. So we're we're going to talk about your new job in our next episode. But uh, I got one last question for you on this episode. What do you like to do for fun?
1: Uh, yeah, I would say so. I would say I like. To shoot for fun, but now that's like part of my job. So I still do it for fun, but it's, uh, you know, it's a part of work. Um, I really love, I love the outdoors and I love fitness, uh, you know, fitness being in shape and I love tying the two together. Right. So I, you know, I, I work out every day. I probably look forward to workouts. Uh, you know, it's almost to me, you know, a drug and yep. it's a very important part of my life. You know, I used to work in that industry, so it's super important for me. And then I love my outdoor activities to require fitness. So whether it's um, skiing or backcountry hunting uh, at high altitude, or even just hiking, that's what I love to do. And I love the I love the seasons to it. Uh, the the preparation and the physical training to get ready for a long,
0: backcountry, high altitude archery elk hunt. I want you to talk about that a little bit because I know we did that at lunch one day, and I I, I still can't quite get sure. over yeah. how how hard yeah. that is. So t- tell our listeners who probably have not been high altitude, you know, archery backcountry hunting what that entails exactly.
1: Yeah, well, for you know, for me, like the I think it's like, it fills a void for me in a number of different ways. For starters, there's a fitness requirement. Um, number two, there is a gear, a heavy gear requirement, meaning there you have to have a lot of good gear, not heavy gear, hopefully it's light because you're carrying it, um, and then there's just the overall, the logistics and planning and how you're going to get in and the map studies and the navigating and things like that. So for me, it's like, as I, when I first discovered it, I was like, oh, that sounds like, you know, being in the military. <laughs> so it kind of fills that void for me. And the way I would describe it is archery elk hunting in the back country in September when the season is. It involves, you know, parking at a trailhead and sometimes I'm parking at like 9,000 feet elevation, sometimes a little higher. And then I'm hiking in a couple of miles, setting up camp and then hunting around there. And then, you know, I might, I might keep the camp in the same spot for a couple of days. I might have to carry the camp on my back for five to seven days and I'm just hiking and hunting as I go. And you know I have everything I need to survive a tent, a sleeping bag my my layering system, you know my bow, um you know I typically have a handgun for you know for bears or moose or whatever, and then you know navigation, and all the other gear, which is
0: food and water
1: yeah, food and water
0: how much water how much water do you carry?
1: I usually only carry about a meter on me. And I try to drink four to five liters a day. So I'm always drinking off that, that bottle. And then along the way, I'm filling up, I'm filtering at streams. Uh, You know, it's sometimes if I'm in an area where it's drier, I'll have to carry more. Because you can't always plan on, you know, having uh, having water nearby. Uh, I've had, I've had circumstances where I was camping up high, you know, around 11,000, 12,000 feet and got all the way up there and there was no water and had to descend 1500 feet, fill a bunch of water and bring it back up to camp. So, you know, it's pretty epic in that, you know, it's challenging. Uh, And if you, I mean, this is all before you get an elk. Now, once you get an elk, that's when the work like really starts
0: yeah this was the Uh, part that this was the part that blew my mind so (laughs) so describe describe that
1: (laughs) yeah so you you have to you know you clean the animal you quarter it uh yeah the you know the front and the rear quarters the the back straps you know the loin meat the neck meat and maybe the cape maybe the head and the antlers and uh you know, you carry that back to your car where you have a cooler. Um, if you're lucky, if you had friends with horses, or you could afford it, like you would have, uh, you know, someone, someone meet you halfway with some horses and pack it out. But that's not usually the case.
0: Right. So uh, how many trips? Are, how many trips are we talking on the way out?
1: So yeah, if you're if you're by yourself, you know, it depends on how heavy you want to make your load. Like a quarter can weigh, you know, 75 to 85 pounds, right? So it's really, you know, it might be unhealthy to carry two of those on one trip, uh, <laughs> but it would also re- reduce your number of trips. So if if you have two people, um, it depends how far it is, and it depends if it's flat, like you can, le- you can really load up, carry a hundred plus pound load. Where I hunt, it's really hard to do that. So you're typically going to take, multiple trips so you hang the quarters in bags you know you hang it from a tree and then one trip at a time you bring it back to your car you know say it's four or five miles you know, so it's an eight mile round trip you know, <laughs> like four times four times maybe, yeah <laughs> and then you know 80 pound loads if you have a buddy then you can cut it in half
0: well, you obviously love it, but it just—you know—when I when <clears throat> when you I said you ask you what do you do for fun and you described that to me, I was like that just seemed horrible to me. But um, but you're you. All right. Well, Eric, this has been great. Thank you so much. Would you like to meet Eric in person and hang out? You can just make the decision to join us for the next Heart of Leaders Training Program in Denver. Call us right now at 858 eight five eight two four eight. 3162, or go to heartofleaderspodcast.com. We believe that Heart of Leaders is a movement started by boomers, accelerated by Gen Xers, and demanded by millennials. To learn more, find us online at heartofleaderspodcast.com, where we blog, post articles, and book reviews, and respond to your questions. We invite you to join the conversation.